The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So again, welcome everyone. Thanks for being here. Thank you to Jessica, who helps me with technology by co-hosting these Zoom meetings, and Dave, who organizes a small group. I trust that those of you who stayed last week for the small group had nice conversations. We'll do it again next week, have small groups. And I'll just mention that uh, the homework that you can consider is just this experience of, you know, in being interested in sensitivity to suffering, our own and others. Just like let that be the lens as you move through the day. Just like in a couple of weeks when we do mudita, appreciative joy, we'll use that lens. Like, can we see what's beautiful? Can we sense people's happiness as we're driving, as we're walking, as we're interacting? But now we're we're just, not to be morbid, but just to realize how much pain every one of us carries around. You know, woundedness. And just to see that in each other. Oh, you're a human being. You probably don't find it easy either to be a human being. Oh, you have a body. You have a sensitive heart. You have more desire than you have, (laughs) than you're able to satisfy. Oh, you know what that pain feels like. I know what that pain feels like. And I care. And don't try to figure it out. Just normalize like, you know, compassion actually isn't so much something that we do. It's something that arises when wisdom, that stability of awareness, that kind of internalized honesty, you know, connects with the truth of suffering, then it's compassion that is there. That's It's sort of the prerequisite to get close with this aspect of life, that things are insecure, unreliable, even ungovernable. It's not a mistake, it's just how it is. And, you know, I think it's useful to understand that all of our lives, all the creatures on this planet, the whole Buddhist tradition, it's all animated by compassion. The the important question is, is the compassion grounded in wisdom or how much wisdom is the compassion grounded in? You know, so much of the terrible stuff that happens in our world, people would probably say, I'm trying to do what feels right to do, you know. We have to invade this country because, or we have to destroy this thing because I'm trying to take care of everybody. So this impulse to take care is kind of a given. It's sort of what animates life. And real compassion in this Buddhist sense is compassion, that that responsivity that's really coming out of the depth and breadth of awareness. So when we've cultivated a sensitivity to the moment, then the compassion is going to be taking into account the whole picture, not some fixed view of who or what is evil, 
and who and what is good. There's a image that's used in uh, Tibetan Buddhism that it's a little provocative, so this is a little bit of a warning. But just that kind of quivering, because there are times in our life, like even those of you who've raised kids, you know, and they go away to school or they move out of town or whatever it is, I don't have children. But just that idea of loss, of saying goodbye, and knowing that it's not like it's going to be a return. You know, those days of, you know, being with our children are gone. Or those days of being with this particular pet, they've passed. That pet's no more. And there's something ungraspable about loss and the grief, right? And uh, because it's painful, the mind, the sort of, you know, ordinary mind, let's call it, presumes that it's appropriate, that it's useful to be afraid of that pain of loss or that pain of uncertainty. Same thing like when we do something humiliating and we feel really embarrassed and um, and we just assume we can't feel it. So the Tibetan images, uh, the Tibetan Buddhist image that's sometimes used is uh, a parent, a mother, sitting on the side of a raging river and this mother doesn't have any arms or legs and their child has just been swept away. So the parent, mother, whatever, is seeing their child go away and uh, not, nothing they can do about it. A long time ago, I, I don't know if I could, could find it again, but there's this amazing video of uh, a woman um, who's washing clothes on some river in South America, people living very simply, you know, um, not people with any technology. And uh, their kids were playing around, and one of the kids gets, one of the smaller children gets taken away by like a big python or something. And it just so happens that there was some anthropologist filming these people living simply someplace in South America, forget the, the location. And just the, you know, that the immediacy of that loss and that helplessness when it's nothing to do in that situation. And uh, just that kind of, uh, you know, that the, the conclusion the heart makes is, I can't feel this. Whatever's moving, it's, you know, there's this conclusion that, no, no, it's too much. So I think the reason these images are used in spiritual practice is not to say that it's easy, but to cultivate an aspiration that everything and anything could happen. For mudita, it would be anything good could happen, and we could handle it. But for compassion, it's that anything bad could happen and we could stay upright, not in a stiff way, but like turning toward life honestly as it is. Like uh, what's going on now in Ukraine 
and I'm sure I'm not the only one who wonders if this thing will spiral into people being killed and maybe even worse, some kind of serious conflict or war even. And uh, of course, we should do whatever we can do to avoid that. And if things really fall apart in any ways, any number of ways that they might, are we going to be able to stay relaxed and clear and keep turning toward what needs to be done to take care, to alleviate suffering? And what is it that gives us the balance and the uh, fearlessness? What is that about compassion that does that? Some of you might remember Sylvia Borstein used to tell the story of one of her first meditation retreats. She's one of the founders of um, Spirit Rock, which is a big sort of grandmother institution for Common Ground in Northern California, just north of San Francisco. But of course, many decades ago, Sylvia was doing their first retreat and in somebody's living room, and there on the wall... In the living room was like one of those signs that we sometimes have in our houses. And it said something like, life is so difficult, how can we be anything other than kind? And that's the, you know, because when our heart is proximate to suffering, our own or others, we either sort of take that route of fear, like, no, no, I can't be sensitive, I can't let this in. So we freeze up, or we distract, or we strike out, you know, at this what we imagine is the cause of the yucky feeling that we're feeling. And the compassionate, the movement of compassion really comes, it's, it, you know, it depends on equanimity and wisdom. But because we want to alleviate the harm, the suffering, right? We, the, the wisdom understands that the heart, the mind needs to be stable, it needs to be unafraid. And so we challenge the presumption, the habit that, no, this is too much or this is not okay. I mean, how many times each day when we hear the news or read the news, is our emotional, psychological response, no, this is not okay. This can't be happening. When, in fact, it is this way. And, of course, <laughs> there's so much other, you know, so-called bad news or terrible things that are happening, we just get, you know, a selected little view. So are we interested, I mean, this is a question we can ask ourselves, are we interested in having that sort of upright, open-hearted, soft, tender-hearted heart as we move through life? And when we run into our friends, it's like, you know how that is when we're ourselves are feeling overwhelmed and we haven't, or we don't have a good, honest relationship even with our own pain, and then we're interacting with a friend or an acquaintance. And it's like, we're really careful about how we talk with them and how we might invite them to share. Because it's like, I don't know if I want you to tell me how it is for you. 
I'm not sure I have the bandwidth to really receive what's going on in your life. Because, you know, it's compassion that, you know, that's why uh, all the Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes are talked about as immeasurables or boundless qualities. So that sensitivity and that responsivity to suffering, it isn't limited. It feels limited, like, okay, I'm sort of at my limit. I've opened up, you know, my cat is sick and this neighbor that I've known for a long time is having a hard time. They're in a breakup and and that's about it. You know, and this thing I follow in the news, that's it. And I, you know, so if you come to me with, or something else starts to, oh, then I lose it. Or then I have to turn away. Or you know how it is, you know, like close her eyes, plug her ears. Or like a little four-year-old, we go, la, 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 la. You know, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to see it. I don't want to know about it. And, and that makes us understand why the entertainment industry earns so much money. Because we're really dependent on turning away from life a lot of the time, aren't we? You know, in different ways, whether you're one who reads books or whatever it is. And it's it's not that I, you know, I, I indulge in entertainment myself, so I'm not free from this, but I want to be honest with myself. This um, habit, this it's a deep presumption. It's a, in Buddhist, Buddhist terms, we might call it a wrong view that my heart has a limited capacity to be with suffering, the truth of suffering. Like I can only know so much. And, you know, we kind of classify people who seem to have a greater capacity and actually seem at times or maybe even a lot of the times to be enlivened. I mean, some of you know Thich Nhat Hanh passed away on Friday and, you know, he was really intimately connected with the Vietnamese people and all that tremendous suffering and um, and just the reverberations um, of the, especially the people that were able or left the country, but all the trauma that they, of course, carried and just really being there for them for so many decades in his life. And just spoke so powerfully about, you know, the enlivening, liberating qualities of compassion. But even Thich Nhat Hanh, said, and I remember this, I, I had an opportunity to practice with Thich Nhat Hanh. I did a three-week retreat um, in Plum Village about 20 years ago. and But I remember him saying once that it's an, actually it's an act of violence that when I'm already overwhelmed, so like I'm already in a defensive stance with the suffering that I'm aware of in my own life and around me, it's an act of violence for me to keep turning toward more and more suffering. Because I'm already uh, unable to really meet the suffering that is showing up. So we don't, we don't want to think of compassion practice as some sort of rush into connecting with the truth of suffering everywhere, <laughs> you know, just sort of like being right in the, the bowels of, you know, pain and suffering. 
we want to begin to, in just very simple ways, realize that it's possible to be intimate, it's possible to be intimate and relaxed, it's possible to be intimate, relaxed, and interested, and responsive, and balanced, and enlivened by all of that, as opposed to squashed, or flattened, or deadened by our proximity to suffering. And, you know, you might have examples, I'm, I'm assuming most of us, if we thought, reflected deeply enough, we could come up, and you could do this in the small groups next week. See if you can, this week, or remember from the past times, when you had that more curious and balanced and stable relationship to suffering. You had a nice balance of wisdom, some distance, you know, and uh, and you were able to really show up in a responsive way, do what you could do in your particular relationship there, or situation there. And the aftertaste during and, and then after, it felt very clean, like you didn't feel you might have been physically exhausted by your efforts, but you're, you weren't emotionally and spiritually exhausted by the proximity to suffering. You know, it's sort of that, that feeling of uh, fighting the good fight or being all in. You know, it, it can be actually, because so much of life on, you know, not necessarily on the surface, but underneath a little bit, we realize there's not much of real value in what I've just spent my day doing. But when we're all in around our own or other suffering, really doing what can be done as best as we understand, imperfectly, of course, because we don't, we never have the full picture. But not being afraid to find our way to alleviate our suffering or the suffering of others, it can be very enlivening and liberating. That sense of life having a real purpose. So I like that about how Thich Nhat Hanh said, you know, that to keeping, uh, thinking we just keep turning towards suffering can end up being an act of violence, an act of cruelty. In the Dalai Lama, too, you know, somebody asked him once, I think it was like in some interview with a journalist, you know, why do people like you? <laughs> or something like that, he was asked. And he had this wonderful answer, you know, this is a rough paraphrase, but he said, it wasn't that I'm so compassionate or so, you know, wonderful, but that I really value compassion. I really aspire to that um, that immeasurable responsive presence in life. You know, not turning away, not needing to turn away. So in a way we're building our capacity, but we build our capacity by finding this thread, this liberating thread. This It's actually enlivening, it's enriching it's liberating, and we can sense it. 
And the interesting thing, you know, a lot of times people will come to me with this, you know, what we've called now compassion fatigue and just asking, you know, from a Buddhist perspective, how do we, how do we take care of that problem where the cries of the world are coming from all directions, you know, there's the problem, the issue of immigration and there's the issue of undoing racism in our hearts and in our world and the economic injustice and elders who need help with their health and going to the doctors and the climate and there's, you know, there's no end, right? The cries of the world. And um, he says, you know, I can't, I can't claim that I can really show up in a wise and stable sustained way but i can say that i really aspire i really value so we build our capacity by finding like what is what is most proximate to me right now and what are the habits in my mind in my heart about how i relate to pain and uh, that others are experiencing that i'm experiencing and what are my alternatives what's the other way what does the Buddha, what do people mean by a compassionate response? What would that look like in this moment? And I want to share this important teaching now as we spend the next couple of weeks looking at compassion. Uh, some of you probably remember this simile that the Buddha used about the, the two acrobats. And sometimes it's described like as a grandfather and his granddaughter, and they put on shows, you know, at the time of the Buddha, so a long time ago, 2,500 years ago in northern India, and that's how they earned their living. You know, they'd get on each other's shoulders and do whatever they're, you know, the little tricks, gymnastic tricks. Um, and so the grandfather, you know, as the story goes, something like telling his granddaughter, now, you really uh, take care of me and help me keep my balance and I'll take care of you. And the granddaughter had a different idea. No, no, no. I'll really take care of my balance and you really take care of your balance. And then the Buddha then responds like how to do this. And what he says is practitioners, protecting oneself, one protects others. Protecting others one protects oneself. Practitioners, how does protecting oneself protect others? It is by practicing, cultivating, and making much of the heart. Right. So we're developing the stability of present moment awareness, basically the Buddha says. It is in this way, protecting oneself protects others. And the interesting question here is like, when we have that stability, that real valuing, and then that um, acting on the value of the stability of present moment awareness, when we're, we've cultivated that sensitivity, not just to suffering, but to joy, to sorrow, to the full range of internal and external experience, when we've learned how to be wide open in life, what would get in the way of a compassionate response when that was, would be the appropriate way to respond in a moment? So, 
in turn, like if I really have that intimate presence, embodied intimate presence with my body, with emotion, with mind, mental activity, with external phenomena, what my granddaughter is doing on my shoulders or whatever, you know, our response would be very skillful, very appropriate. And then he goes on, he says, and how does protecting others protect oneself? Because it's like that feedback. When I really take care of the stability of my awareness, I can take care of others. When I'm really taking care of others, they'll take care of me. It is by patience, non-harm, loving kindness and sympathy or compassion. In this way, protecting others, one protects oneself. Because when I have the stability of awareness, I can actually be patient with others. I can actually act in ways that don't cause harm, that are kind and compassionate. And this is a this is a hard truth, you know, because when we notice suffering around us, we just want to go take care of it. But it doesn't occur to us like, you know, what sort of mind is going to be responding. So this, I thought, would be another place for some homework for us all to be try to be as honest as we can when we when it seems like we're we have a compassionate response to be really interested like how much of what I'm calling a compassionate response is based on me not liking the pain and suffering that I'm sensitive to. And so I want to get rid of it. Oh, I'm going to drive you to the doctor because I'm really getting sick and tired of you being sick and I want this cancer treatment to be done and over with and you to be in remission so I can get rid of this yucky feeling that I have about you being sick. Now, of course, we wouldn't say that, but we might notice some pattern that kind of looks that way. And just to get interesting, I mean, i interested in that. I noticed this with my partner, um, Win Fricky, a lot of you know, one of our teachers and the co-founder of Common Ground. And uh, I noticed, like, I have to practice when I sense that my partner is suffering or having a hard time with something in life. I have to practice because I honestly see that the default pattern in my mind is to be aversive, impatient with their suffering. Here, suffering is bothering me. You know, I don't want a partner that's suffering. I want a partner that's happy so they can be sensitive to my suffering <laughs> or something like that. And just it's so interesting, like when you read the news and you're hearing about a group of people that are having difficult circumstances, just to notice the any quality of aversion, anger, <clears throat> or fear. Because that's not compassion. That's the near enemy of compassion. Meaning it sort of superficially looks like compassion. It seems that we're be compassionate because I'm hurting but there's a difference between compassion and empathy, like where like somebody is like overwhelmed by life and then we hear about that, they're telling us about being overwhelmed and then we're kind of like mimicking their suffering. Well, that's called suffering. It's not called compassion. We're, it's that sympathetic suffering. 
but we're interested in a, a sympathetic love, which love is a generous and an enlivening emotion or attitude. It's not a deadening, freezing up quality in the heart. It's a loosening. It allows for a more nimble, creative, appropriate response. Because we're not afraid to be relaxed and sensitive. So how we respond, there's like more possibilities of what we say or what we do or what we don't say and don't do because we don't have an agenda to get rid of the suffering. I mean, yeah, we want to alleviate it, but not because we don't know how to be with it, but because we know what it's like to suffer and we want that person's suffering to be alleviated because we know what it's like. I like this statement from, I think, Pema Chodron. And uh, she's, she says basically that the relationship we have isn't um, between a healer and the wounded. You know, that hierarchical, I'm the glorious healer here, the one who will project compassion out into the world. And she writes, it's a relationship of equals. Only when we know our own darkness will we be able to be present with the darkness of others. So it's like we understand that's why our heart quivers. So there's that element like where we're uh, we're using empathy, but we're not stopping with that sympathetic vibration like, oh, I get how hard this is for you. Or we hear about, you know, even on the other side, a place we've never been to, but something terrible is happening. We have our own imagination. We can sense, oh, I know what it's like being a human being. If that were happening to me, ah. But we don't pay it, we don't sort of fixate on the suffering and our sympathetic, empathetic sense of their suffering. What we pay attention to is the energizing, enlivening wish. May wisdom and love protect you. If there's anything that can be done, may it be done. If there's nothing to be done, there's nothing that I know to do right now. But I want you to be free from your suffering. And even if the circumstances can't change or don't change, I want you to be free, I want you to be at ease, even as these conditions continue. Right? Now, here's the thing, like, for me to really be in that compassionate place, to really wish well, I have to have some intuition that it's possible for them to be free even while they're in the dying process or even while they're being abused in some way. And this is why compassion takes some real wisdom. It's the sense that there's always release available even when circumstances are as bad as we can imagine. You know, there's some, in the Buddhist tradition has some pretty provocative uh, similes. Like another one, like I mentioned, the, the parent unable to save their child being swept away in the river. Another is the simile of the saw. The Buddha says, it would be good for you to remember the simile of the saw. 
And it, again, it's just a little warning. It's a little disturbing image. But even if bandits or robbers were to saw off your limbs, it would be good not to harbor ill will towards them. Right? Because anybody who's willing to cut off your limbs, you know, would you want to have the mind of someone who can cut off your limbs? No. They're deserving of compassion. It doesn't mean you don't try to get away. It doesn't mean you don't try to take care of yourself. It just means harboring ill will doesn't help anybody. It would be good to be compassionate for yourself, for them. So it's a high bar. And it's, and it's really this understanding that there's always something we can do no matter the conditions. There's not always something we can do to change the outer conditions. We're in the dying process, or we've got this going on, or this political situation, this social situation. It may change in the long run, but right now, it's really not... I don't really have the power to affect change. But when we wish someone well, even with the circumstances... We're really drawing on our faith, however feeble, however limited our own understanding is. We're drawing on this possibility we get from our spiritual lineage that even with these conditions, may you be free. May your heart be at ease. May your heart be unafflicted even if these conditions, these terrible circumstances were to continue. See, that wish, that's really like the ability to have that wish really gives us the capacity to start having a more truthful relationship to all the suffering around us. Because denial is in its own way toxic. Like needing to be unaware of the truth of suffering. I mean... This is why racism continues, right? And this is why economic injustice and classism and sexism and all these different ways that people are marginalized and oppressed and abused, it continues because we don't know, we haven't all learned how to have an honest relationship with the suffering. Because if we were, if we did, like if we had that balanced and stable and sensitive presence, then what would come out of that would be real social political change. I'm not saying we'd get to the perfect world, but we wouldn't waste time in denial and distraction. Because you know how it is if it's when there's suffering right in front of us in a way that's undeniable, a child has scraped their knee and they need help. You know, it's not like we turn the other way, most of us. We would bend down and we would get some band-aids and we'd find the parent or we'd take care of the problem. So when we, we avoid it because we think we can, we think there's no cost to being distracted and in denial and superficial and you know, basically uh, disconnected. But we don't realize the price. It's like the way life is, the way the present moment is, you can't, we can't be strategic, like I'll open to this part of life, 
but this part of life I'm going to remain in denial. No, we close ourselves off from life. That means we close ourselves off from life. And then we start to feel closed off from life. We feel alienated. We don't feel alive. We don't feel enlivened. So we're living, a, it's sort of like a zombie. You know, we're not really alive. We're going through the motions and we become more and more dependent on intensity to make us feel alive. Well, that movie was good, but I need something more intense. You know, whatever our particular flavor is. Physical, whether it's physical, even physical activities that are intense or food that's intense or sexual relationships that are intense. or But it's because we somehow have gotten under the habit of thinking the the way through life is to be dishonest about suffering. So this week, you know, we, we want to really explore how fear, how we use fear and superficiality and basically we're managing truth because we think we can't handle it. We think the heart doesn't have the capacity to really see things. And, you know, these little things can be quite impactful. I remember one of my longer retreats at Incent Meditation Society and just doing walking practice in the fall in Massachusetts, back and forth. And uh, it was one of the first really cold days, you know, so it was below freezing. And uh, I noticed in my walking path as I walked back and forth, it was on some asphalt and I noticed there was a grasshopper just sitting there, immobile, because, you know, it was below zero. And just that, you know, just the starkness, you know, of seeing, and, you know, being in the middle of a longer retreat, the heart gets really sensitive. And what we pay attention to gets very amplified because of the concentration and stability of awareness. And so this, you know, the mind unifies. It's just saying there is a living creature no down coat, you know, cold-blooded creature that, I, you know, I'm guessing that that grasshopper has antifreeze in its blood. So it probably, you know, as the sun came out later in the day, maybe it was able to move until it couldn't, until it really froze in Massachusetts. But just that exposure that comes with life. And another just simple example of letting, like practicing in these more simple ways of uh, opening to that quivering of the heart. I was doing, again, another time doing, this is the great thing about walking meditation practice, the eyes are open, we see stuff. And here I was in a cabin at Arrow River, which is a Buddhist hermitage, just across the Minnesota border towards Thunder Bay in Canada, run by uh, Ajahn Punadamo, a Buddhist monk up there. And they have cabins. It's real wilderness up there. And I was just walking back and forth in the little cabin. And uh, there was a window at one end of the walking lane. And just as I was walking to that window, a little colorful forest bird, one I'd never really seen before, really colorful for the northern woods, flies right into the window. <laughs> Falls down. So by the time I get to the end of the walking, so the window's right in front of me. I look down, there it is, you know, a few feet away from just stunned. And then I turn around, walk the other way. And about two minutes later, I'm back in that place, still there. 
And so for that, whatever that was, 45 minutes of walking, you know, just seeing, sort of noticing the hope that the bird's, you know, stunned, and but it's going to come to, and then after five, ten minutes or longer, you know, realizing, no, no, it's not going to come to. That's a dead bird. And just like noticing all the little and big ways the heart wants to distance itself from this simple reality that birds don't know what to do with glass. <laughs> right, because the glass, as most of you know, reflects the leaves and the trees, so they just think it's forest. You know, and they fly right into it. They don't hesitate. And so we're in this world where stuff like that happens, right? <laughs> That's the least of it, of course. All this kind of stuff is happening all the time. But interestingly, why isn't my heart really interested and sensitive to that? All the little and big ways that this happens. What do we do when we're driving and we see roadkill on the side of the road? I'm not saying that we should stop and take a look, but you certainly can. But just to notice what goes on in the heart and mind when you drive by and you see the next deer or the next squirrel or whatever it might be on the side of the road. Or what do we do when we see an older person or a feeble person or a person with a body that we don't like for whatever reason, conditioned reason? What does the heart do? You know, what do we, what happens when we hear the stock markets goes down, you know, and we're thinking about retirement? For those who are listening to this talk months or years later, it went down a thousand points today and then came all the way back up. So, you know, it's like that sort of energy we get pushed around all day long with these ups and downs. And so when we cultivate mudita, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, appreciative joy, learning to be unafraid with the beauty in the world, now we're learning with compassion, karuna, to be unafraid in balance with all the suffering in the world. So that we can have that stability and that responsivity, no matter what's happening. And that's really the balance the Buddha was talking about with um, that simile of the acrobats. You know, we, we really take care of this trust, this deepening trust and awareness, this balanced, stable, clear, fearless, tender presence. And, and you know, even as an idea, even as an intellectual idea, doesn't that make sense that if we're going to be living a human life, doesn't it make sense on that just basic level that if I'm going to be living a human life, it just makes sense to be really there, really present, sensitive, undefended. It doesn't make sense, you know, if you were going to write a self-help book, you know, how to defend yourself against life. <laughs> how to live your life and not really be there. You know, <laughs> it, it wouldn't make sense. You know, it's just like, oh no, that's not going to work. We'd know that intuitively. That, that can't be the way. Like, 
somebody writes a book, self-help book, you know. What you need to do is get really good at lining up one distraction after another so you basically miss your life because it's really, you know, it's not, not a place you really want to be. You want to be immersed in a book or immersed in music or immersed in the dramas of relationship. You don't really want to have this more profound, deep and broad presence where you're seeing and sensing everything as it is. You don't really want that. And, you know, the truth is we don't really know what we want, but we should know enough, like, I should check that out. Like, what happens when I go in that direction? And then you can see, like, these four divine abodes of kindness and compassion and appreciative joy and equanimity. They're just different ways to be really connecting, really present with different aspects of life. So when there's a lot of suffering, we know how to be really present and intimate and unafraid. That's called compassion. And when life is really great and good things are all around us, and we have appreciative joy that allows us to be really stable and balanced when there's a lot of beauty and goodness around us. And when things are confusing and ambiguous, we have equanimity. And all of that has that flavor of goodness that we call metta. It's just basic goodness of the heart, the heart that's willing to include, willing to be close. Oh yeah, this belongs too. This belongs too. And I thought, uh, you know, one of our real elders in understanding these divine abodes as Sharon Salzberg. Yeah, for whatever reason, Sharon just brought these teachings uh, forward here in the West in our early Buddhist tradition. And I still feel like one of her, maybe her first book, uh, Loving Kindness, um, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness, I think is the subtitle. It's probably, boy, it might even be 30 years or certainly 20 years now since it was written, but I, re I recommend it. And uh, one thing I included is an article in the email that I sent out today. There's a link for a number of articles on compassion, including one from Sharon that was written about the same time that that book came out, um, 1994. And... Um, in the Insight Journal, and it's called The Nature of Compassion. I just want to read a little bit because I think it's a nice summary of what I've talked about and what we'll talk about in the small groups next week when we come back with our own field research, <laughs> looking all the ways that we're afraid of suffering. And just, you can have compassion for that. Remember, it's not about hating yourself or having ill will that we get tight around suffering. We want to have compassion. Oh, look at that. I'm closing my heart because I don't know any better. I care about that. I care about that habit of closing down or having pity for those who are suffering or all the ways we subtly throw people out of our hearts. So here's how Sharon defines uh, compassion in that article, The Nature of Compassion. So what is compassion? What is this mysterious force that is not anger, 
not aversion, not guilt, not grief. The traditional understanding of compassion is the trembling or the quivering of the heart in response to pain. It's a movement, almost a sense of agitation, but not a restless agitation. The heart is enlivened, like it's like, whoa, there's suffering here, and I care about it. I want to do something if I can. She writes, it's trembling, it's quivering, it's open, it's tender. The courage of compassion is said to come from equanimity. Because we feel compassion in response to seeing pain, we need equanimity to be able to open to the pain in order to not deny it or pretend it's not there or repackage it so it sounds better or looks better. We need to actually see it for what it is. We need equanimity, we need courage, we need wisdom to be able to open to pain. And then the compassion can come forth. And of course, that's what I meant. You know, we have to build that up through practice. And the practice best begins where the we encounter pain and suffering in ways that are not overwhelming. And it's just like so many little places to see that in life just noticing trash on the side of the street. Oh, I live in a world where people think it's okay to throw trash instead of finding a garbage can. And, you know, the heart, like, wants to throw that whole thing out of our heart. Like, no, no, you you don't deserve my sympathy, my compassion. You know, you got to get your act together. It's like, oh, but can I include that there are people that do things like that? Is that okay? Here's a little bit more from Sharon before we end. Practice is not about having and getting. It's about being compassionate toward ourselves and others. It's not about assuming a new self-image. It's not about being compassionate. It is about being compassionate naturally out of what we see, out of what we understand. Compassion is like a mirror into which we can always look saying, is this really what's motivating me? Or am I doing something else for some other reason? Compassion is also like a fire that continually purifies our motivation and practice. And I like this point because that's a, what we're doing with compassion practice is we're finding something that actually can animate, motivate our whole life. It can be the animating force of every moment of our existence. And it never runs out. You know, until the body ceases to function, our lives can be animated by compassion for oneself and compassion for others. But we have to purify this compassion so it's not really, you know, mistaking pity or fear of suffering for compassion. And that's that investigation, like where we really sense the quivering that enliven- and that natural wish to alleviate the suffering, to not contribute to the suffering. 
she continues in the same place, having a precise sense of compassion is very delicate. Compassion has qualities of self-sufficiency, of wholeness, of not being broken or shattered when facing states of suffering. It has qualities of openness, of spaciousness, of resiliency. It is born out of friendliness, out of loving kindness, of knowing our oneness, not just thinking about it or wishing it were so. And it really comes from cultivating this perception, not of, you know, we have this very strong perception of being apart, being alone. I'm here, all of you are there, the rest of the world is like outside of me, out there. It's not inside of me. And we have to realize that that's just a habit, a way of perceiving, a habitual way of perceiving. It's not an essential truth. And we can cultivate another truth. Like one of the things they, just a teaching in the Buddhist tradition, not so much something to believe in, but just to kind of rock our world a little bit. But the Buddha would say things like, or the tradition says things like, you know, every one of us, we've been each other's mother and father and brother and sister and enemy and friend and lover and this. You know, we've done it all. We, we kind of share this, like, been there, done this. And there's, we have this, um, you know, it's, it, what, it's an experience that arises when the mind is more sensitive and balanced. And a lot of this deluded thinking of being apart and being separate, it isn't actually our felt direct sense when the mind is more clear. That sense of wholeness, or what Sharon called it, or wrote it, oneness, you know, it's an actual, actual experience that turns out to be much more compelling and trustworthy than the sort of culturally conditioned perception of being alone, alienated, it's just me and then the rest of the world out there when we have more and more of that experience, it really, oh yeah, that's the truth. I still visit states of being alienated, feeling alone, feeling separate, but I don't believe them anymore. It's just a habitual lens that my is sort of well-greased in my temperament, so I might fall back into it. And we can start we we understand these four divine abodes of friendliness and compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity because they're just the organic attitudes when we're coming from that place of wholeness. And when the wholeness, that sense of open presence runs into suffering, that quivering, tender responsivity is just there, what we call compassion. And when we see something beautiful, there's that joy and appreciation and all those sort of beautiful what we imagine you know those saintly beautiful attitudes they're completely uncontrived and natural nobody has to do them so instead of you know doing the course and like 
putting another should on our life, like I should become a more compassionate person. If you do do that this week, then the key will be, oh, honey, you're suffering. <laughs> I'm suffering. I'm, I've added another should in my life. And I'm just another way to judge myself or another way to hate myself or another way to sort of think that other people are further along than me. Oh, if only I were Thich Nhat Hanh or the Dalai Lama or Mother Teresa or, you know, fill in the blank. But I'm just lowly me who's just stingy and afraid and I really hate my neighbor. I hate to say that. Because we can have compassion, like when we do have a kind of narrow point of view, no problem. Oh, honey, you've got a narrow point of view. That's a narrow point of view. That's oppressive. And I care about that. I care that that's a habit in this heart and mind, just like I'd care about it if I saw it in somebody else's heart and mind. Oh, that can't be fun. So just see what you can learn. Lots of good articles in the link that I put in the email. Check out. Don't feel like you have to read all that stuff, but you know, just use your intuition. See what makes sense to you. And then uh, take some notes or make some mental notes so when we have our small groups next Monday, you have some things, to, some little kernels of wisdom and real life experience to share with your small group. Really nice being with everybody tonight. Thanks, Tim, and thanks, Jessica, for helping out, and hope to see you all next Monday. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.